I often feel like a hypocrite now because I spend a lot of time encouraging people to make their next career jump and to put themselves first and to stop trading job misery in exchange for job security. Whereas I never found the courage to do that. I had to be exited to fully commit to doing what I should have been doing a long time ago. In this episode, you will hear from Andrew McCaskill, a top LinkedIn influencer, also part of LinkedIn's Changemaker program, which is working on making work a better place. Andrew is also the founder of Executive Career Jump, a career coaching company with a mission of ending career-based misery. In the past two years, he's worked with over 500 people to help them find jobs that are more aligned with who they are. Today's episode has a different format than usual as we first talk about the state of the workplace, the role LinkedIn is playing in this, and then we dive into his story. I hope you enjoy it and also learn from it. Never yourself. Andrew, it's a real pleasure to have you with me today. And for the benefit of our audience, could you share what you do today? Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me in, Greg. So what I do is I'm the founder of an organization called Executive Career Jump, and we provide a whole bunch of different services, but under the mission of trying to end career-based misery. So we work with businesses and individuals under that North Star, which is driving our work, which is all around trying to take the misery out of our working lives. And what about ending the job misery that brings you to life what is it own experience uh, similar to you of knowing what it feels like to have the sunday night dreads knowing what it feels like to feel completely unfulfilled by what you're doing and to have heightened anxiety because all of your energy is going on internal politics rather than on impact and i think there's way too many people that are in that situation and for too long we've confused our identity with our job and that we need to provide spaces where people can break out of this almost self-imposed jail that they've created for themselves and take themselves forward in a way that brings more fulfillment. It's, it's not a dress rehearsal. We only get one career. So we might as well go off and enjoy it and try and make a bit of a dent in the world, as far as I'm concerned. And what do you find most enjoyable in what you do? Well, the message of I got the job is, is the best thing ever. So we've helped 500 people get hired in the last two years. And so we're just spoilt with helpers high, Greg, like absolutely drowning in helpers high. So we're the ones who are getting messages all the time saying that little interview tip you gave me or that little piece has really helped me get this over the line. So yeah, it's the tangible impact. It's the message of the person who's, you know, maybe been out of work for 18 months, who's managed to secure something they're excited about, or finally managed to build up the courage to resign and set up their own business or whatever it might be. But it's those very human moments. We're incredibly sport with those. I mean, that's fantastic. Helping family people finding a job and ending, it's not job misery, but it's joblessness. That's great, actually. I, I wonder, you, you mentioned the helpers high. I, I love that, 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 that phrase. Where do you think that helpers mentality come from for you? I think it's part of your up, upbringing, isn't it? I was, very, I was lucky to have two parents that were very altruistic, who believed in community, who looked after the people around them. And I think that had a big impression on me. But I also think it's innately human. And I think we're having a bit of a reset at the moment in terms of we've gone from a very individualistic society to community showing us more, showing up as more important to, you know, un the understanding that the more that you help others, actually, the more you help yourself as well, becoming more mainstream. So I think it's two things. I think it's up, I think it's upbringing, but also through the work that we've done and a wider societal shift, I think, I think more people are moving in that direction. Yeah. I think that's really positive. And on this, you, you wrote, and actually that's the reason 
I wanted to talk to you. You wrote in one of your posts or, or article something about your values and you said, I have felt it for a long time and now I know it to be true. When you align your values with what you do for work, the impact is huge. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, I can. So I think um, one of the hardest things in your career and one of the fast tracks to burnout and to job-based misery is being asked to do things for your work that don't align with who you are. I think it's so tough. Like the reason that I would struggle, I think, to work in a big corporate is that I couldn't pass messages down to my team, to a team that I cared about, had hired and had fostered that didn't feel right. And I often used to clash. I often joked I was unemployable because I've worked for various CEOs and at all times I've clashed with them if I felt like I was being asked to pass something down that didn't feel right from a values perspective. So I think values is incredibly important because I think a lot of work-based stress and burnout is caused by overworking. But I think the other big reason that causes workplace burnout that nobody really talks about is work that doesn't feel like it aligns with you or has no meaning or has no correlation with who you are. And the more you can align what you're about with what you do, the more fulfillment you're going to have. So that's really what I was getting into, I think, with that particular statement. I, I relate uh, a lot with this. And I wonder, based on what you said, and, and I'm really curious about what, what you think about it, but how possible is it for people to be in a large corporation and be aligned with their values at work? What's your perspective on this? Yeah, I think it's more possible now than it has been previously because just through demand, the larger corporates are having to evolve their models. And so the battery yeah. hen farms don't work anymore. Talent is more discerning. People are more... Talent these days acts like a customer or consumer. So hierarchies are being broken. The command and control piece doesn't work. There's hybrid working. And people are just far more discerning. So I think it is possible because I think corporates are having to evolve at pace. But they're still in the midst of that change. And so what's very interesting is one of the most common scenarios we currently help people with is people who are working in big organizations who are coming to us and say... Look, um, I'm 50, I've done 25 years, I've climbed the ladder, I've been divorced twice, I've got financial security, and mm. I'm just having this career existential crisis around what has it all been for, what is it all about? There's no victory parade or trophy at the end of this, as I was promised. And so can you help me transition into something smaller, more mission-orientated, more impactful, something with more meaning, something where the decisions I make on a Friday impact what happens on the Monday and I've got a platform to drive change. Yeah. Something where I will be given freedom within a framework to go off and, and, and unlock the potential in the people that I'm looking after and, and all of this. So there's definitely a huge shift for people wanting to leave traditional corporate routes and get into stuff with more meaning. And it will be up to the corporates to evolve and adapt at pace mm. or not. I guess the other strategy for them, I don't know what you would think about this is actually they just double down on what they know and just become totally authentic about like, if your values are this way, then come and work here. So maybe they, they could go the opposite. And I don't suppose there'd be anything wrong with that. Do you think they'll adapt in time? Or do you think we're going to see a big shift of people continuing to leave traditional corporate routes and going into different directions in their career? Yeah. I agree with what you said earlier that talent now acts more as a consumer and, and therefore they have more choice and there is more knowledge or information out there for you to make choices 
Glassdoor, for instance, gives you some insight into what a certain corporate is going to feel like as an employee. So that's great because then it puts more onus on the corporates to adapt. At the end of the day, they can try and adapt, put great values on the wallpapers and on their savings screen on the laptops. But it really comes down to leadership, whether leadership really uh, embraces those values, embodies them, and then it will trickle down. So uh, to me, it depends whether investors, uh, because to a large part, it depends on, okay, who's the owner of the, of the business, whether investors and, and leaders are willing to go down a route where there is a more sort of human leadership. That is where leaders themselves as CEOs are more aligned with their values in the way they lead the business. I think they are, and I think LinkedIn actually is a great platform to promote this. I see a lot of great inspiration actually on LinkedIn. Maybe talk to us about on this, on LinkedIn, because you're on, on LinkedIn and, and also part of the Changemaker uh, program. Can you tell a bit about how do you use uh, LinkedIn as a platform? That would be question number one. Um, and two, what do you think is the impact of LinkedIn on that question of helping creating a more human workplace? Yeah, I think it's had a tremendous impact. So for us, it's been a life-changing platform, right? That's not making a, uh, it's not overdramatic to say that. It, it literally has. And, and then to be honest, I'm not a big fan of social media, which kind of surprises a lot of people when I first meet them. So I feel like Facebook is pretty depressing. I feel like Instagram probably does more harm than good, particularly to young people. Yeah. And Twitter's yeah. just like a circus as far as I'm concerned. Like I just, I can't get to grips with it. It doesn't appeal to me. There's some toxic elements in some of these platforms that just don't appeal to my values. LinkedIn, whilst it gets put in with the other social media platforms for me is like in a category of its own. It's in a category of its own. And the essence behind the Changemaker campaign and the opportunity LinkedIn has is to be the platform for driving progress and change within the new world of work. And that's exciting. And the reason it has that opportunity is because it's in the public domain. It's a career focused place, but it's also become, particularly over the last few years, a very human centric place as well, where honest discussions are had, where open debate is had. And in the main, whilst obviously you're always going to get a few troublemakers and trolls in the main, in a respectful and, and open way, because people are attached to their employers they're attached to their cb whilst they're on linkedin which makes it makes the discourse a little bit more a little bit more respectful on both sides in general so i think linkedin's got a huge role to play now linkedin is also the single bigger career and marketing opportunity that's ever existed because the organic reach you can get via posting on linkedin and by organic reach we just mean the amount of people that see your stuff is completely unrivaled. So we've consistently now for two years had a million views per month on our content on LinkedIn without spending a single penny. We've had a thousand inbound clients without spending a single penny. Never had any, never done any paid social, never done anything like that. So there's never been a situation like this, like where you can li quite literally build a following and reach for free and get in front of decision makers, people you want to hire or whatever it might be whilst you're out there. So from a leadership perspective, I think it's taking on some importance because talent's acting like a consumer. Lead how talent researches before they go and join an organization is typically now fishing around on LinkedIn. So they're looking at your profiles, they're reading your recommendations, they're 
taking a view of some of the comments you're leaving or the content you're producing to try and get a feel for who you are. And that's a really important nuance to pick up on because young people, when they're leaving uni or being mentored, are being told by everybody, pick a leader, not a job, because it's a leader that has the biggest impact on your career fulfillment and your progress. So they're going out as discerning consumers to pick a leader, not a job. And therefore, CEOs, MDs, and leaders in general need to be visible, need to be contributing, need to be authentically amplifying who they are and what they stand for, not having their PR team vanillaize it into some corporate comms and building a footprint on there that will allow them to attract opportunity, contribute to progress and conversation, and ultimately give them a competitive advantage in the talent market. Yeah. Such a big opportunity and most people are doing nothing about it. It's incredible. It's a great opportunity, but I just try and put myself back a few years ago when I was looking at LinkedIn as a pure you know, user and, and looking at content and quite scared of engaging because it was just not part of my, the way I was brought up. And I felt like I didn't have the right or it would even be, we would feel dangerous to express myself authentically, to have my real opinions about life in general expressed publicly. So I really felt the threat. Now, obviously I've turned around, I've been a lot more open about my vulnerabilities, but it's also, it's also part of my job, right? That's, I'm a coach, so I, I, I want actually individuals and teams or people in general to open up, to disclose more of themselves and, and of their weaknesses and, 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 and failures, because actually that's when you create connection with people much more deeply. But back then it would have felt very scary to do it. And so I wonder how can leaders who are using LinkedIn or, or not actually take that step of opening up without having that feeling of, well, this is really scary. There is no question here. I'm just sharing an impression of, yes, there is the need for this. There is a lot of opportunities, but our, and maybe just the inspirations coming out of LinkedIn, like I am inspired. It's the only platform where I am truly inspired by what I see. And that's why I, like you, really value LinkedIn as a platform. And I, I think it is a force for good, actually. From what I see, maybe there is a strong bias because they show me what I want to see. I don't know. And I'm sure there is. But I hope actually other people see. But I see posts with real vulnerable content or force for good content that gets viral. And I see this and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And hopefully it inspires leaders to, to show up more as who they are with their vulnerabilities and and then hopefully then it attracts people. But I guess in people's minds, like if I show vulnerably, they will not want to work with me because I, I'm not the perfect leader that I'm, I'm supposed to be. Yeah, I think the idea that people are looking for perfection is flawed anyway. And I feel like that at a leader level, but also at a company level. Yeah, you know, most of the employer branding and job adverts that go out are an absolute nonsense, right? Like they're projecting a this utopian work environment that doesn't exist. And so people are then joining and then suffering a big 90 day dip because they're joining one, what they think is one thing and they take a look under the bonnet and they go, huh, this is a mess, right? So I think you want to be starting any employment relationship from a point of trust. And I think a point of trust comes through authenticity at both a company and an individual level. That's yeah, that's super important. But I think what holds people back in my experience, having helped quite a few people take the leap and dare to post to use your language is a number of things. One, they think that everything that they put out has to be some kind of McKinsey level thought leadership. So there's an intellectual ego that kicks in. I've got to produce a post that is future facing, 
and is conceptualizing something that's never been conceptualized before and is going to take the industry by storm. No, you don't need to do that. So I think that's one of the things. The other, the other thing that stops um, people posting is fear of judgment from others. But I think part of being a leader is a commitment to getting comfortable being uncomfortable and to trying to let go of the fear of judgment of people outside your circle. And I think that's part of the leadership journey. And those who it's moved from, it's certainly, I think also a big part of it is maybe five, 10 years ago, there were, you know, the leaders in inverted commas who were doing all of this, it was quite ego driven. Yeah. yeah. So the agenda behind it was very ego driven. It was about attention seeking. There was some narcissism in there. Like this is what was going on. And so the other thing in our mind is I don't want to be like that guy or that girl. Do you remember her? Oh, mm. that's cringe. Because we've judged some of these characters in the past, we then worry about that judgment ourselves. But ultimately, personal branding, using LinkedIn, it's moved from that ego-driven activity to what is now a strategic imperative, like how people find jobs, how people select suppliers, how people sort out which partners they're going to work with, how people decide whether they're going to invite you on podcasts based on what you write on LinkedIn. Our decision-making mechanism is on here. And so it's a, a huge competitive advantage if you can unlock it. And those that really worry about that, I would challenge from a leadership perspective, are you showing the leadership values that you would aspire to? Are you being the leader that you would hope you would want to be? And how would the leader you would hope you would want to be act in terms of getting uncomfortable with this and giving it a go? Because we make no, yeah. make no um, bones about it. We operate in an ecosystem right now where there's a leadership deficit. It's a serious problem in organizations. There is a leadership deficit. And what I mean by that is that as C-level roles have become more and more technology and data focused, the types of people that are now in the boardroom are people that are more comfortable with numbers than humans, which leads to this disconnect. And it's why the culture in some organizations is just in the yogurt in the fridge. It's not actually a living, breathing thing that everyone op operates with. So there's a leadership deficit. There's this You've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable and be the leader you want to be. And the best way to project that you can offer leadership to clients, customers, and employees is, is to use the LinkedIn platform to do so. It's, it's just such a good resource and it won't always be like this. Like I'm fully aware it will not always be like this. It will get to a point of maturity or where it starts to tail off. And so I really see it as a three-year play for anybody who's brave enough to give it a crack. And I think everybody who does will benefit hugely. Well, I know they will because we see it every day. So what would be your tips if you're, you talked about honesty, authenticity, but if you were to summarize in <laughs> too long, I'm sure you've got like a, a, a whole big playbook, playbook yeah. on this. Yeah, exactly. But what would be the, the major things that you would re recommend somebody to do? Yeah. So first of all, uh, write as you speak. So don't write in a vanilla or corporate way as you speak, even to the point that we get some clients dictate their thoughts on a topic into their phone so that it creates the text. And then we remove that text and put it into the LinkedIn post so that it's literally communicating as they would mm. speak, because we've all been trained to write in a very corporate way and that reduces engagement. So that's the first thing I would suggest people do. The other thing I would, which is totally underrated is actually leaving comments on other people's uh, posts. You do a couple of things. One, you give them the gift of your engagement. Two, you get on their radar, but three, you also tap into their networks. Because you you will then be visible to the other people that view that post in their world, which increases your exposure. So that's a nice, simple thing to do. And there are so many different things. But from a third point of view, 
the one thing you need to understand to leverage LinkedIn uh, effectively is the concept of the golden hour. So this is quite tactical, but when you post on LinkedIn, the bots in the LinkedIn algorithm rank that post during the first hour. So if you imagine for every like, you get one point, for every clap, you get three points, for every comment, you get 10 points, that kind of score system. So depending how much engagement your post gets in the first hour, depends whether LinkedIn continue to promote it outside of the initial mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. experiment it runs when it posts it. So understanding the golden hour concept, getting a post in between 8.30 and 9 on a, a Tuesday or Thursday morning, which are the two peak times, and then putting aside 45 minutes to reply to comments, to tag people in that you want to get some eyeballs on it and just nurturing the post for the first hour after you post, that's how you amplify it further. Cool. Great tips, actually, that are, the three of them, I didn't know. Thanks for that. Um, so now you're a top LinkedIn influencer. You've been invited to the Changemaker program, but obviously it didn't start this way. Can you talk a little bit about the, the beginnings of the exec career jump story? Yeah. So my, my career was in three chapters. So my first chapter was in finance and accountancy. Um, so when I left education, I went into finance and accountancy, working in an accountancy practice. I think it's just because society told me that was a good thing to do. I never had a massive passion for it. My friends and family seemed impressed. So off I went and to be an accountant, to make everybody else happy, realized during that period that it wasn't for me and I wasn't a great accountant, but I really enjoyed the customer interaction. So I ended up spending 15 years in executive recruitment and sales. And hey, can I just pause you, sorry, for, for the first part as an accountant, how long did it take you to then do something else? Four years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and it's good grounding, right? Like I joined the dots backwards and I'm still using some of that finance knowledge on running my business today, right? So it's not, it wasn't a waste of time at all. I learned a lot from it, but it was never going to be me long-term, not in a million years. Uh, but anyway, we went and did that. So then I ended up in recruitment just because my best friend was and he was doing very well. And that opened up a whole load of opportunities. So we moved to London for a bit, did our Dick, Dick Whittington stuff, turned up to make our millions in London. I think we spent millions, I don't know about earning them. Went out to Australia for a while and ran a recruitment business out of there. And then moved back to the UK once we'd started a family in Australia. And that's when I joined an executive search business here locally. And I went on a five-year journey to help scale that business out. And at the end of that journey, it was 85 people in five countries. And I was the MD working for two business owners. But one day um, in my office, I got a text message and I looked down. It was one of the business owners asking me to go meet her in a hotel. And ultimately I turned up and when I arrived at the hotel, it became clear that my time with the organization would have ended. And it's the first time that had ever happened to me. I'd never been made redundant or fired or anything like that before. That was a bit of a shock. And what ensued, I can only really describe as a grieving process. So I went through periods of obsessing over the detail of everything that had happened in the lead up to that day. I went through periods of staying a bit too much in touch with people that were in the company. I went through periods of anger and bitterness and plotting. And even at times when I thought I'd got to acceptance and moved through that change curve, it would wave over you at times, Greg, like you'd be sat there and it, it's a grieving process. It would wave over you and, and, it and it would start to startle you again. But through sheer luck, I'd already started a passion project, what the young people today call a side hustle. But I can't, as a dude in his 40s, I can't say side hustle without kind of cringing. Let's say a passion project, which was that we were doing career coaching and job search coaching on the side, like we were doing this on the side. And so in the end, this became the catalyst because through a combination of 
having already had an online platform with a job search course in and some experience of career coaching and the context of my recruitment career, I now had personal context of the pain and grieving that came with redundancy. And so we decided to go off and do something about it. And that's yeah. when we finally, uh, you know, got the, the impetus to try and scale out executive career job. And we were just incredibly fortunate with the timing. The universe was looking after us because we launched in December, 2019 during record low unemployment. So we were doing job search help to people during a period of record low unemployment. And four months later, obviously the pandemic hit and through way more luck than judgment, here we were with a job search solution and all of a sudden a whole load of more people needed mm. something to help them through that period. And so we were just right place right time. And it was, yeah, it was very fortunate. Yeah. Right place, right time. People obviously with you and your wife having already invested into that project. And, and I love the, the, the phrase passion project. What made it so much of a passion for you? Yeah, just, it was just the context of the helpers high that came with, with, with getting that note when people had been successful and also breaking what I saw was a really destructive cycle that people were going through on the job market. So I, I coined this phrase, the jabs, which is job acquisition burnout syndrome, right? It's not a, it's not a medical thing. It's completely made up, but I, I, I was always talking about the jabs and how the jabs plays out, Greg, is people hit the job market and they don't do enough work on themselves. They go out to interview too early. They typically get further rejection. They then forget their skills and they go too passive and they start just throwing out job adverts and getting more and more knockbacks, which then makes them interview even worse and their self-concept starts mm. to drop. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, a horrible self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy where the longer you're on the job market, the more likely you are to stay on the job market. And I think we know this intuitively that it's always easier to attract jobs when we're enrolled. This is part of the game that's going on. So I, this horrible spiral. And so part of why it became such a passion was helping people break out of that downward spiral and to empower them, to give them the tools, the skills, the insights, the data, the templates, and the boost that they needed to get on the upward spiral, whereby they were using their own business skills on their job search. They were managing it as a project. It was, it was structured, it was professional. They were planning their time. They were going on a fake commute in the morning and then coming back into their house as if they were starting their work day to work on this thing. And we could start mm. to build up this entire playbook that stopped people going on the jabs and instead got people mm. moving closer towards their goal of employment. I don't relate personally, but I, I definitely know quite a few people who've been through this jabs process and <clears throat> Well, ultimately you found something, but it, you could feel the drag, the, the drag, the emotional drag. And the more they were getting into the drag, the more concerned actually I was getting because the, the further down you are in the cycle that you described, the harder it is to actually sell yourself or project actually even who you are, not even selling yourself, just actually being who you really are as your best version of yourself in an interview. And so that, that's great. So now I know who to send people who are looking for jobs too. And that, that's really cool. But so you, the passion, so it sounds like as a headhunter, you were making the match, but you were not actually helping people get to the point where, okay, this is a win. I got what I wanted. And so that's the, this part that was missing and that you wanted to dedicate yourself to it sounds. Yeah. I, I love headhunting too. Like I love the chase of it. I love pitching for work. Like I. I'm not ruling out that I wouldn't work in headhunting again. I definitely would. 
but it was the personal I think what I was missing was the work we were doing at the time on that side felt transactional. It felt mm. transa it felt transactional at a company level and it felt transactional in terms of how I was rewarded. So it was, we say for work to be fulfilling, it's got to hit your head, your heart and your wallet. And it was hitting some of my head. It was doing okay from a wallet point of view, but my heart, it, it, it wasn't lighting me up in any kind of way. Mm. And so what? led you to actually start this passion project because I'm sure you're MD, 85 people, growing yeah. a business, you're busy. Yeah. Just through accident, a couple of candidates, I started coaching them before interviews. Another couple of candidates who w we couldn't help. I said, oh, do you know what though? You should try a few different things on LinkedIn like this and this. And eventually people went, oh, this is really good stuff. And so the first thing I did was then create the online course so that I had somewhere to send people who weren't suitable for what we were doing, but in a way that I could add value to them so that yeah. it felt like at least I was not abandoning people in the time of need and I was giving them something of value. So we set up the online course first. What then came off of that was they went, I loved the module on interviews, but I really could do with some practice with it. So it's like, okay, cool. So now we'll do an interview coaching product, 90 minutes. We'll sit down, we'll record it. I'll throw all the obvious things that are going to be thrown at you. You can watch it all back and we can get some insights from that. So it, it, it just evolved. It was quite embryonic and it just, it, it grew over time based on the demand and what people were asking us for. So it sounds like a very organic process of very. basically investing into something that gives you a lot of fulfillment and at the same time where you're delivering a lot of value. Yeah, it's crazy. The more you help people get what they want, the more that you get what you want anyway. This is what I'm saying. It's the, the moment I, I, I switched out of the scarcity mindset and into the just pay it all for. So like, even today we work with competitors. We work with anybody that fits with our mission. Our mission is to end career-based misery, right? So anybody that fits with that, I don't care if they're in competition with us or whatever, we will collaborate because there's, there's something bigger than this month's numbers that results in all of this. And I'm a firm believer that people want to work with people that are working in missions that they genuinely care about and aren't just wall decorations mm. and they can sense when it's real. So yeah, that's all it was. It just became a self-fulfilling thing that we loved it. So we delivered a great experience and people got results. So they told a bunch of other people about this dude that was doing this thing that he clearly loved. And then it, and then LinkedIn then gave us the platform to help more people at scale and do free broadcasts and free coaching and put free templates out and in inbound came all of, all of the demand. Mm. I think it's a beautiful example of when you really align your strength, your values, where you can actually deliver real value to people. Why should just great things happen? And that's what happened for you. And it's a great story, actually, that somehow losing your job, enabling you to invest more into this passion project and ultimately actually really making it a big platform. Yeah, exactly. It gave us, it gave me the catalyst to do what I should have done before, but didn't have the bravery to do. And I often feel like a hypocrite now because like you, I spent a lot of time encouraging people to make their next career jump and to to put themselves first and to stop trading job, mis job misery in exchange for job security. Whereas I never found the courage to do that. I had to be exited to fully commit to doing what I should have been doing a long time ago. So I, so it, interesting because I, I feel this dilemma myself, right? Where I feel like a bit of a hypocrite where, okay, this is, I want people to, you know, I don't want people to make a jump actually, because in some people I work with, they end up actually just progressing in their career, but in a different way. In a, in, in a strong alignment, actually, with their values and, and strength. But I, I wonder for you, what held you back of 
actually j- making the jump. Your company is called Executor Jump. What prevented you? I think we create a self-imposed prison around us. And I think we do that based on a number of different things. I think the traditional definition of success is misunderstood. So I became, you know, I went off to be an accountant because I heard that was a successful thing to do. I became an MD at a relatively young age because then I had a business card with a big job title on, which meant I was winning, right? Like that's success, isn't it? And what you, what our traditional success, I think it's great. The conversations that are happening right now is that we're redefining what success means and that it's something that's very personal and it's something that isn't external, it's internal. Whereas I was caught in the trappings of external success, like so many, two very nice cars on the drive, two very nice all-inclusive holidays to escape from the job misery every year. And that was it. In the eyes of society, I was winning, but inside I wasn't winning, but I didn't have the courage to take the leap because I was, it's almost an addiction. I would call it almost an addiction. It's a pathological doing something that's not right for you, but that fulfills a need, which is normally a gap in yourself that I wasn't able to break out from. And so you were feeling that misery in a way inside, despite the external markers of success. Uh, How clear were you that you wanted to make this passion project your sort of life and work project? From the first session that I did. Oh, wow. And so how long did you stay in that sort of gray area of passion project to actually, this is what I'm going to do? In total, it took about 12 months to fully commit. Yeah. You know what I find really fascinating with your story is it sounds like it's been easy and I wonder, obviously I'm sure it hasn't been easy and there's been a lot of work and there's been pain as well of you losing your job and the grief that you mentioned. I wonder what enabled you to make it um, feel organic. And when you described it, it sounds like organically it, it's been a success. And I can, there are a few things that you know, I'm, I'm picking up and I'd love to, to hear your thoughts as well, but you were capitalizing on your existing career, right? Because as a head hunter, you talk to candidates. And so you had this potential needs that you were engaged with. You were building on something that created this help us high and Somehow I'm sure there is something related to your strength. I'm not sure about this, what, you know, you're really strong at, but it sounds like that's an important part. And then you were doing this on the side, not having, I'm not sure, big expectations for it. You were just like, okay, let's just invest in this. Let's see how it, and then having those two tracks, the main track, earning money, doing what you know how to do and successfully, and then on the side, just investing into this passion project. And obviously the two were helping each other, or maybe the main one was helping the second and aligning with your values. Or maybe that's the magic recipe because actually I've got a, another person who's been on this podcast who very likewise, actually he was desperate. So it was different. He was desperate because his pr- first company was essentially sinking. His business was vanishing. He's also, by the way, in headhunting and in a special niche. And he was like, shit, what do I do? And he had started this side project, which he was passionate about and was gaining traction. And obviously it was again, also there was of a mutual feeding from one another and ended up being an organic, real success, dictate two, three years. Anyway, just going back to the question, what do you think is the magic recipe then for you, at least in your experience, for making this an organic success? Yeah. 
I don't think there is a magic recipe, it's my honest uh, opinion, because we've tried in launching new products that haven't worked. And we've tried various other things that haven't been a success. So I don't propose to have it, claim to have any kind of magic recipe at all. But the number one, which is such a boring answer, but it's just simply true, is consistency. That's the number one, without question. And so I post on LinkedIn every single day and I analyze the data every single day and I have consistently paid into the ecosystem. And it's like compound interest. It's, it's just gone. So it took us 10 years to get to 12,000 followers. And now we're just about to tick over 95,000 followers two years later. So we went from 12,000 to 95,000 followers in two years through sheer grit and consistency and honing the craft and, and working out that channel. So the main key to our success has been our ability to win trust, understand personal branding and amplify using the other thing that I think is absolutely key is community. And I think a lot of the emerging brands we're seeing have a community focused built on an authentic mission. So it doesn't matter whether you look at, I don't know, a big one at the moment, Huel, for example, Huel, the, the drinks, the nutritional, like they've got Huel. So they don't have customers, they have Huligans. They have people that actually wear the t-shirt with the brand on and call themselves Huligans. And there's also an authentic mission underneath all of that, that a lot of us are busy and are eating processed crap rather than nutritionally complete food. So you've got that community element sitting over that authentic mission. And I can give you, you know, Heights is a brilliant one with Dan Murray Serter. Like, you know, there's a guy talking about brain care on scale with a huge community. And if you create that community, they become your customers, your referrers, your advocates, and all of that as long as you create it in an authentic way and not a manufactured way. So I think it's, yeah, consistency. There's probably a model in here. Consistency, community, customer, those three uh, C's crossing over somewhere, getting my management consulting hat on. There's probably a three C's there. <laughs> yeah, but there is something about the personal passion and values that you mentioned as well, that's refueling all of this and enabling the consistency because doing this every morning can really feel like a grind and then talking to you doesn't seem like it. No, it's not a grind at all. I thoroughly enjoy it. It's, yeah. it increases my energy rather than depleting it. Yeah. I, yeah. I go to my work if I'm feeling low, like it's, it's a totally different, it's a totally different flip in my mindset. In terms of mindset, I, I think that's the wrong word as well. I mindset or mind shift, but it's not set at all. That's my point. That's why I don't like mindset. The idea that mindset is it's not set, is it? Like there's nothing mm. set about it. And if you can do the discovery work to understand your values and orientate around a mission and then open up your mind to get rid of those kind of scarcity sort of thought processes and constraints that, that keep you fearful, then yeah, you can go off and do it. There's no reason you can't. I wonder if you could share a bit of a story on, on failing and, and what were your learnings? Yeah, we've, you know, spent a lot of, so one, one, one thing that we failed miserably on is, so we've spent a lot of time and money creating expensive content for YouTube and had zero return from it. I think to date we're on about 500 subscribers or something, and it just hasn't paid off. And I think my relationship with failure has got better because now I, I don't view it as failure. I view it as data. And that depersonalizes it. It takes my ego out of the equation a little bit. So it's okay. It's not failure. We ran an experiment <laughs> on a channel, quite an expensive experiment, but we ran an experiment on a channel that didn't deliver. So that's fine. We've now gathered that data to know that's not part of the long-term plan. So it's, it's not making it about me. What were you doing? Why didn't you just stick to the one channel? 
why did you spend all that money on fancy studios when you could have experimented? The negative self-talk, I think we're often the most critical and cruel of ourselves. And that's what we've got to be really careful with. And failure is a classic for spiking some of that kind of really it cruel inner critic stuff. Whereas as I say, it's data. It's just data. It's win or learn. It's that was a big mistake. Completely screwed it up. Could have had, yeah, could have done a lot better with that a channel with that money. Looking back, I know what we got wrong and that's fine, but we move forward. Mm. Okay, cool. I've got a few rapid fire questions for you. Can you share one moment when you showed up vulnerably to others, despite fearing doing it? If I think about where have I felt most uncomfortable, you mentioned you read the first chapter in the book, the first, the job search playbook that we published last year. That was a big moment. That felt vulnerable. That's, I felt imposter syndrome when writing the book and particularly sharing that first chapter, because all the other stuff around how to go and get a job was far more comfortable than actually writing down my own experience of what had happened to us. So that, that was a big thing. And also launching the book. That felt really vulnerable as well, because I was just like, why would anyone, what are we doing? Who do you think you are? But I'm glad that we did. I'm glad that we did. It did way better than we were expecting. We, again, we get notes and positive uh, Amazon reviews and stuff around how it's helped people. So I'm really glad we did. But yeah, to nail down one, I would say it would be the book launch, writing the book, putting myself out there as an author. I'm not a great writer, I don't think. So that felt very uncomfortable. But again, the way I get around it is one, I don't, I try not to care too much about other people's judgment. And two, I try to focus on the audience. If I have to be, if I have to feel a little bit uncomfortable here, but actually it break, helps someone break out of that jab cycle, then it's worth doing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I relate to this. The first time I wrote uh, a post, actually a blog post about me losing my job was, I felt very vulnerable, but mm. I felt like I, I, it was a way for me to heal from this, from the yeah. grieving process that, that you're talking it's about. It's cathartic. Actually. It's cathartic. Yeah. We make, we make force, coerce, encourage one of the two, somewhere in amongst all of that people to shoot up what we call a flare post, which is once they've been made redundant, they shoot up a flare to alert their network. Cause we were finding a lot of people were just hiding the fact that they'd lost their job. Yeah. So we got the, we get them to shoot up a flare post. And that is the first kind of massive step outside the comfort zone and getting vulnerable, whereby we post immediately on LinkedIn saying, Dear network, just to update you on my situation, this is what's happened. I'm grateful for the lessons I learned, but I now want to get back to doing what I do best, which is this kind of challenge. So please keep me front of mind and we'll speak soon. That kind of up it goes. We've had people hired from these. Yeah. People hired from these updates. They often go viral, these things. They go very well because everyone, everyone wants to go in and help. It's, it's vulnerable, it's human. Yeah. And you get the payoff for that vulnerability almost immediately. So it's, uh, yeah, so yeah. you get the payoff and, and it's liberating. I would say also, because suddenly it's, mm. in, it's in the out, so it, it doesn't stay in your mind. Yeah, right? it's cathartic. It, it, it helps. Yep. Yeah, it's cathartic. Exactly. So I won't do the rest of the rapid fire question, but I do want to ask the, the, the last one. Who inspires you the most? Definitely uh, parents, right? Like it, for me, I was really blessed with the parents that, that brought me up. I mean, my, my dad's one of those five, five children, grew up with very little and worked very hard to give us the best shot that he could and is very humble and he won't spend any money on himself. Just a great guy. So de def definitely parents inspire me. But I'm also inspired by anybody that is shaking up the status quo. I'm inspired by anybody who is aligning who they are with what they do, because I think that is courageous and exciting and I'm inspired by them. And people that are taking a bit of a challenger tone, I think I get inspired a lot by content on LinkedIn and I try and take the challenger tone myself, whereby you know, people that are holding up a mirror to some of the nonsense 
that gets that exists out there and and are calling out some of the change that we need to see so yeah i think linkedin's a fantastic place for that mm-hmm. yeah thanks for sharing now with your father i can hear that let's get to work tagline yeah very action orientated that up and at them scottish yeah um and they and there you go yeah so yeah let's get to work is about propensity to action right like i just the reason we finish everything off with let's get to work is that I believe done is better than perfect. And I'm trying to just inspire people to take those small steps, whether that is Mm. post for the first time, reach out to their network, spend a bit of time with a coach like you reflecting on who they are and what they want and giving themselves permission for that. We just want to be a a small energy force in just giving people the little nudge and encouragement that they need to do what's right for them. Yeah, I love it. Andrew, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your story, but also your tips. And let's get to work. Indeed, let's get to work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Derby podcast. I hope you got inspired to follow your mission with passion. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. I would also really appreciate it if you can leave a review on your podcast platform. It makes a huge difference and it will help others get inspired by these stories too. Till next time, Derby yourself.